Welcome to the Gregory House podcast. This is Evangelism by Father Matt Woodley. Okay, so we're going to do some things here that I'm going to time, okay? So, um, so we're going to stay on a very strict schedule because that's the kind of guy I am. So um, here you go. You've got 45 seconds when I say go, and you're going to write down three words or three phrases that come to your mind, your mind. I'm not talking about the- theologically correct words or phrases. I'm just talking about what you feel. So this is about your feelings. I want to know what you feel about evangelism, okay? When I say evangelism, and you should do evangelism, do you feel excited? Do you feel sad? Do you feel guilty? Whatever. Boom. Three words, phrases, go. Okay? Give me some of them. Just uh, call them out loudly. Trepidation. Guilt. Imposing. Ready. Naftali. <laughs> You're so odd. Okay. Uh, anxious. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Yep. Awkward. That's a, intriguing. Uh, what's that? You get to know people. That's really good. Yeah. If it was more intriguing, it would be less awkward. Anyway, go ahead. Fits and starts on and off. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. Incomplete by itself. A partial story. Ah, okay. I would like to hear more about that. That's, that's good. Um, Okay, so let's look at this. What I want to do is look at a very familiar scripture passage. I just want to look at certain verses in this. So Caleb is going to read from um, Luke chapter 15. You all know this. You all know why Jesus told these three stories. You all know the three stories. Um, And so we're not going to actually read the stories. We're just going to read the reactions. And I want you to think about what does God think about evangelism, okay, from God's view. So go ahead, read those verses from Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so, I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, so I'm going to riff off of John Clark. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. The only 
or the perfect human who speaks and acts on behalf of God as God. Can I do that, John? Is that legitimate? So living the life that we should have lived perfectly, righteously, obediently, he models for us what evangelism looks like. I just find that, that's really beautiful. Um, so anyway, what do you see, what words would you use to describe um, if this is God, the triune God, as an evangelist, as the ultimate evangelist, what words would you describe in the life of God for how God views evangelism? Yes. Patience. Very good. Joyous. Yeah, that comes through really clearly, right? Yep. Drawing near to sinners, yeah. And we could say joyfully drawing near to sinners. Anything else? Would you? Self-giving, yeah. Oh, what's that? A declaration of action. Yeah, like I'm, I'm deciding, I'm, I'm, yeah. It's good. Um, so what is evangelism? Well, let me read you a couple definitions. So this is J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, his book. Um, evangelism is a work of communicate. Well, let me just say, this, I think this, these definitions take some of the drama and don't really emphasize the joy of evangelism, but they do give some clarity to what it is. So, um, so keep Jesus in mind in Luke chapter 15 as you read these definitions. So evangelism is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners. Anyone who faithfully delivers that message under whatever circumstances is evangelizing. Since the divine message finds its climax in a plea from the creator to a rebel world to turn and put faith in Christ, the delivering of it involves the summoning of one's hearers to conversion. If you are not, in this sense, seeking to bring about conversions, you are not evangelizing. But the way to tell whether, in fact, you are evangelizing is not to ask whether conversions are known to have resulted from your witness. It is to ask whether you are faithfully making known the gospel message. Now, let me just say a couple things about that. Um, I don't completely, I don't think that's probably the best definition of evangelism, but I think it, he makes some really good points. And he is J.I. Packer, so who am I to argue? But, um, but I, I think... Um, I think there is something to the effect, uh, to, make, to be clear that not every encounter is you are calling somebody to conversion, but the overall arc of your journey with that person and with people is, part of that is you want to invite and call people to conversion at some point. Um, and I think there is something to what we might call pre-evangelism. So there is something to, let's say, art or drama or music or literature or um, that is really effective pre-evangelism that softens people's hearts. So we see that in Acts chapter 17, for instance, which Paul um, 
doesn't necessarily make a call to personal faith in Jesus Christ uh, it's crystal clear, although that's kind of in there. And he's definitely doing some very powerful pre-evangelism, laying the groundwork. Um, but then he does get to the end, and he says, there's a man whom God has appointed to judge the earth. You want to know more about this guy? Let's talk some more. Um, so the other definition is Michael Green is shorter. Um, a presentation of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will put their trust in God through him, accept him as their savior, and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. Um, do you guys have, what do you have for number four, bullet point four? Okay, uh, so let's, let's look at this case study because this is a great case study about one of my main points, and that is, well, actually, I won't tell you what the main point is. I'll let you see if you see the point in this, okay? So, um, Amy, for our podcast people, I was going to just have people read this right now, silently. Is that okay, or should we read it out loud? Just give them the notes. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys about four minutes to read this conversion story, and I want to get what you think what were some of the, um, the effective ways that evangelism worked on Rosario Butterfield's heart and mind. So this is one, just a case study. Somebody had a very profound conversion and the people involved in her life, but um, just based on this, what, what made... What did, does evangelism look like? And for lack of a better question, what made it work? Um, I know that's probably not the best way to phrase that theologically. John can help me with that. But, um, but yeah, so anything, just any ideas. And just raise your hand and Caleb will give you the mic so we can get it on the podcast. <clears throat> Are you ready to talk? Is that a raised hand? Yeah. Hey. Uh, what impressed me about Rosaria's uh, testimony was describing her life before conversion and how stable and fruitful and uh, full and fulfilling it was. Um, and oftentimes in our evangelism, we tend to present the gospel as though this is something that will bring meaning into your life mm. and um, fulfill you. You know, it, it appeals to your desire to be a fulfilled person. And of course, there's enough truth in that to make it dangerous. Um, but the presentation of the gospel to her was not framed in such, in such terms. It was rather framed as, I mean, kind of this invasive thing that was threatened to upturn and overturn her entire life. And I, uh, yeah, I, I suppose then as, as far as like, how, how do we frame, you know, like, how do we frame the, our message when, whenever we're engaging in evangelism? Um, you know, doing so, it, it's probably be play, best to assume that whoever we're talking to is probably very content with their life mm. at the moment. Um, and we're not presenting this, we're not like a snake oil salesman presenting this wonderful cure that will uh, make everything better in, in your life. Um, and to be honest and open about that, actually, we're asking you to do something very difficult and very hard. And I think that will definitely change the tenure of our evangelism. 
Yeah, that's really good. Um, any other comments? Raise your hand as I make a comment on that. And just that we have no indication in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was unsatisfied with his life, you know, before he met Jesus. And Jesus really ruined his life um, <laughs> temporarily. It was like it was going so well. He was advancing. I mean, he was a really good at persecuting Christians. He was really good at it, and he seemed very satisfied in it. And Jesus made a train wreck out of all of that. Yeah, Sophia. Um, I just was impressed that they took her so seriously mm. right off the bat. Um, there was no, like, patronization um, from the beginning. They really honored and respected her own ability to think through their questions, their, which actually challenging questions. Um, but all without a tone of like, um, you can't think through these things, or you, you know, you're, um, they just honored her identity as a human being with a brain who also had worked on um, difficult stuff and um, engaged her as a person with their hospitality and kindness. Yeah, yeah. Great. Couple more comments. Anybody else? I, I love that phrase, he didn't mock, he engaged. But he didn't fail to engage either. He engaged. Um, oh, that's very loud. Um, I think I was just noticing that, like, they, Ken and Floyd didn't just tell her about their faith, but invited her into their life that centered around their faith, which is a much more vulnerable place to put yourself, I think, like, inviting her in that way, you know, not just preaching at her. That's what I noticed. I, I bet you what you said was really amazing, but I had a hard time hearing it. So. I am so sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I said was, I, I was just noticing that they didn't just tell her about their faith, mm. but invited her into their life that centered on their faith. Yes. And let her be a part of it, which is a more vulnerable place to put yourself, I think. Yes. Really good. Good observation. That was actually the point I was looking for. So you got it. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay. Caleb, yeah. Uh, on the second page at the bottom, she used the phrase of, they entered my world. Mm. And I thought that was kind of on the flip side of that. Not only did they invite her into theirs, but they entered into hers. They didn't, they didn't run away. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, just a lot in there. And there's also the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing her. Um, so, again... The triune God is the ultimate evangelist, the evangelist that's out ahead of us, before us, working in people's hearts. Um, so before we show up on the scene, there's a triune God in whom we live and move and have our being, as Paul said, that beautiful phrase. Like, um, so we, I've debated this. We used to use the phrase a lot around here, people who are far from God. And um, I've come a little much more uncomfortable with that phrase. It doesn't seem biblical because you, I understand in a way they are far from God, but in a way they're not. They're closer to God than they could ever imagine. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. That's, that's pretty close. Um, so um, the other thing I want to point out too is that, um, so point, I think it's point six on your outline, it takes a church to evangelize. Um, and let me read you a couple of quotes from uh, missiologist Leslie Newbegin. Um, brilliant. Uh, was is he Lutheran? Lutheran guys? Is he? What was he? What? He was Anglican? Anglican? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. 
So he's one of us. Okay. Um, here's three quotes. The primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. So get over this idea of the lone evangelist, the lone superstar that has the gift of evangelism, which there are people that have that gift. But how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on the cross? How is that going to be made credible? The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I don't know. That just that gets to me every time I read that. And that's what we see in this testimony. It was a, a, it was a church. It was the hermeneutic of the gospel was this local church. Evangelism, there's another quote, evangelism would lose its power apart from the life of a new kind of community where the saving power of the gospel is known and tasted. The church already embodies a foretaste of God's kingdom, a foretaste of a different social order. Um, let me just make a comment here. That is why it is so important that we do our politics in such a way that we don't convey the idea that we are a branch of a political party. And, she's, and, and she saw that. And, and, and I will say this, um, I think it's harder I think it's harder, it seems like more of a stretch for somebody that comes from a liberal, progressive background. It's almost like we ask them to give up more than somebody who comes from a conservative, um, more, dare I say, Republican background. It's like that's, that's kind of what we've made, not, not all of us, that's, that's a temptation of the evangelical movement in America. We just don't ask a lot of people coming from this background. We ask a ton of people coming from this background. And I just don't, I think we've lost the hermeneutic of the gospel when we have become or perceived as an extension of a political party. So let me just say that. Um, uh, so it takes a whole church. Let me, let me tell you a story from Rez. And um, Margie, you were involved in this. So a young woman named Claire comes to our church, she's, uh, she was married, she had a little, uh, a little boy, or she was pregnant, right? She was pregnant of when her, um, uh, she was living in um, Batavia, St. Charles, white picket fence, she had what she called just this unbelievable life. Uh, both her and her husband were um, college grads, uh, they had good jobs, um, he, both were really into philosophy and literature and art, very in intelligent. She gets a knock on her door one night. Um, sorry, ma'am, would have to tell you, your husband was involved in a car crash and he died. Um, that was like, what, maybe, what was that, maybe eight years ago? Yeah, so we had a family at our church that the daughter and, and Claire were friends in high school or college. They invited her to come to res. So she comes here, never really been to a church. Um, absolutely life devastated, shell-shocked. She comes to this church, she has, she doesn't believe much of anything that we're teaching here, but she sees the hermeneutic of the gospel at work here with people that love her, people that care for her. 
Um, she came to Alpha. We had just a, a network of people walk beside her. Beside her. Um, I got to be privileged of being one of those people, but I was just one. I have a, our email correspondence is about this thick of questions over, the, over like a year and a half. Questions about this, questions about that, or why do Christians say this? And man, it was just, it was one of the uh, most difficult, because sometimes she'd ask me questions and I'd go, oh man, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this. But, um, but we just kept at it. And then um, she came to know the Lord. She is now remarried uh, with a guy that was attending res. It is a story of total redemption, salvation. It's like everything we want in a conversion story, you know? It's like, it was amazing. And, but my point is that it was the church that walked beside her, not just one person. There were so many people involved in this person's life, and it was, it took, it was a process. Um, so let me... Um, I'm, a little, I'm jumping around a little bit because I just found out, what was it, Sunday that I was going to do this, or Saturday? I can't remember. But, um, so, but let, me talk about, let me talk about another issue that comes up, and that is the issue of evangelism versus social justice. Um, because, well, Andy Crouch puts it this way um, on page bottom of page two. These days I do not often meet Christians so passionate about evangelism that they question the need for doing justice. I am much more likely to meet Christians so passionate about justice that they question the need for evangelism. And Crouch goes on to say, meeting the physical needs of the poor wins attention and affirmation from a watching world. Naming the spiritual poverty of a world enthralled to false gods provokes defensiveness and derision from those who do not even believe there is a God. Our secular neighbors care, many like never before, about relieving human need and more of them than ever before are indifferent or hostile to the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and the one who meets the deepest human need. In short, working for justice is cool. Proclaiming the gospel is not. Anybody found that to be true? <laughs> um, John Stott, in his book, by the way, if you got any questions, feel free to just raise your hand. So, this book, Christian in the Modern World, um, with uh, John Stott and his disciple Christopher J.H. Wright, Stott outlines three approaches to what he calls to the relationship between evangelism and social action. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about this, you know, but, but, um, but I think they're really helpful categories. So the first one is social action as a means to evangelism. So I do, I give the poor food so that I can evangelize, okay? Stott says, eh, no, wrong approach. That's wrong because it doesn't, um, it's, not really the, it's not really what we see in the Bible, it's not really what we see in Scripture, and it really doesn't treat uh, the dignity of the human person. We are, using, uh, we are using their need to, it's really like a bait and switch. It just, it doesn't have integrity. Um, second approach is social action as a manifestation of evangelism. So uh, Stott puts it this way. Um, he says that, uh, well, he says that, so this would be social action as a, it has evidential value 
as a sign of the kingdom. So it's a sign that the kingdom of God has come. And Stott says it's true. That's partially true. But it's not, it's not the best way to say it, he would say. And so the third option, he says, is that social action and evangelism are partners together. They each have their own dignity. They each have their own place. And you can't, you can't be the church without both of them working in partnership together. Um, so he puts it this way. As partners, the two belong to each other and yet are independent of each other. Each stands on its own feet in its own right alongside the other. Neither is a means to the other or even a manifestation of the other, for each is an end in itself. Both are expressions of unfeigned love. Evangelism and compassionate service belong together in the mission of God. And let me read you another quote. This one's a little longer, and sorry I didn't get this on, the, on the, your study sheets, but I, we can print it out and send it to you. If we truly love our neighbor, we shall without doubt share with him or her the good news of Jesus. How can we possibly claim to love our neighbor if we know the gospel but keep it from them? That's evangelism. Equally, however, if we truly love our neighbor, we shall not stop with evangelism. Our neighbor is neither a bodiless soul that we should love only their soul, nor a soulless body that we should care for its welfare alone, nor even a body soul isolated from society. God created the human person who is my neighbor as a body, soul, and community. Therefore, if we love our neighbor as God made him or her, we must inevitably be concerned for their total welfare, the good of their soul, their body, and their community. Now, I think that gets it right. Um, and so Stott, and Stott goes on from there, which could be a whole nother uh, topic. He goes on from there to talk about vocation and how God has called us to different various vocations and different spheres and how we can bring those kind of two dimensions in both, both of those spheres. So let me just stop there and just ask if you got any questions or comments. Let me see what we're doing for time. Oh, we've got plenty of time. If you got any questions or comments about just the church, it takes a church to evangelize, or evangelism and social action. So any questions or comments? Yes, Sophia. Um, I, ju I just want to say that I feel like it depends on what circles you're in, which of those two, uh, social justice or hmm. evangelism, is prioritized. Um, I spent a lot of time in the past five years along, like, really reformed circles of Christians and, and particularly, like, Baptist and re Baptist reformed or non-denominational reformed. And... Um, they seem very passionate about even about evangelism and very scared of social justice almost the way that some of us are scared of evangelism uh, uh, but very eager to provide for the poor um, so i think it just it depends yeah. on what christian circles you're in that you can have either error um so this is a good way to prioritize both yeah that's really good and good to know what our particular community's blind spot uh, which which one were not uh, we've let drop off the map, so to speak. Any other comments? Questions? Yeah. I think just you know it's easy to talk about the value of 
evangelism, but harder to do it. Same thing with social justice. I mean, so I'd love to just hear, can you think of any ways at Res we're kind of bringing those two together just as a way to kind of flesh out practically what this sort of partnership might entail? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so first thing about Res is that most of the action takes place, I think most of the action takes place outside of our formal structures and what's like our budget lines and what we say, like we're gonna focus on sanctity of life or we're gonna focus on refugees because we, and I think this is really, I think this is actually good, I think this is a good thing, that the church is the church gathered and it's also the church scattered, people being salt and light. So we have stories of people um, who are in professions, um, but not only professions, they might be doing volunteer work, working, I mean, we just, the stories I hear, these are just people who are just quietly doing, a, a kind of integrating evangelism with ministering to the poor, or ministering to the marginalized, so they're, they're volunteering with um, refugees, or they're going down to the abortion clinics and they're praying quietly outside the clinics, um, or they're working with persons with disabilities, or they're in the prisons or in jail. Um, and um, I mean, so we truly, I think the, the genius of any church is that that's where most of the action is gonna take place, and you actually may not see it announced and pronounced upon from the pulpit. Um, so then we have uh, formal things. So like for instance, our global missionaries, so we support 12 global missionaries um, and, or is it 13 now? Um, I, I lose track because we just, we've, we've added like three and we're adding two more, so two more in the process. And some of those people are, well most, a lot of those people are in places of great spiritual need. Um, so we say now we are sending people from Res our, our global missions, we say we're sending sons and daughters of res into places that, where the church is not visible or viable, okay? And so those places, so that's our, that's our kind of our goal, our vision for global missions at res uh, as we move forward. And many of those places are also, there's like an, an often an intersection between the places where the church is not visible or viable and the poor. Um, or places where um, there are just profound human needs. So we have Father Gregory and Dr. Heidi who are in Phnom Penh and they're, they're pastoring a church there and Dr. Heidi is working, they're working with women who have been trafficked. Um, Dr. Heidi is training uh, medical doctors that in one of the most under-resourced medical environments in the earth, we have a young woman that's, that's getting ready to go to Turkey, she's gonna work with she wants to go to Turkey and work with Afghani refugees. This was before all of this, the Afghanistan fell and all that kind of stuff. And so she actually wanted to go to Afghanistan, but her, the mission agency wouldn't let her because it was just too dangerous, which was absolutely, and we didn't want her to do that either. But so she's, again, she's working in this place of profound spiritual need and profound physical human need. So, uh, so there definitely are places where that comes together. Uh, does that help? Yeah, and praise the Lord. It's encouraging. Thank you. Yeah. Doesn't mean we're perfect at it, by any means. And there's, yeah, 
got a long way to go in certain areas. Any other questions or comments? <clears throat> yeah, Cameron. So in the testimony uh, that we read, she talked about how because the pastor, Ken, didn't invite her to church, she knew it was safe to be friends, she says. Um, how do we navigate that tension that comes where you know, the invitation to church or something like that might be viewed as the same sort of bait and switch that you talked about earlier with people who are skeptical about Christianity or things like that, while still knowing that evangelism needs to be done with and in the church. Yeah. So how, how do we invite them to church? Um, and yet, yeah, I, I think... Well, okay, a couple things, a couple thoughts come to mind. This might not be the perfect answer, Cameron, but a couple, minds, a couple things come to mind. First of all is having a, having a relationship with somebody, uh, knowing that they trust you, um, knowing that they can ask you questions, knowing that they can disagree with you, knowing that you will, like this article, that you will take their, them seriously, take their personhood seriously, take their questions, their doubts, their agony, um, and then, second of all, just be, um, you know, really honest sometimes. I mean, I, I have a friend named, uh, it depends on the context, depends on the relationship, but I have a friend that I've known over the last three years, a woman in her 70s that I used to hang out with, had two brothers in, in uh, uh, Aurora, and she is super skeptical, super angry at the church, um, and yet we're friends, and she knows I'm a pastor. And she said at the beginning, she said, <clears throat> um, well, we can be friends as long as you don't try to convert me. And I said, I can't promise you that, because <laughs> I do want to convert you. And you know what? I said, I bet you want to convert me too, don't you? You know, you would probably like to see me change my mind on certain things, don't you? She said, yeah, of course I do. I said, well, let's just be honest about it, you know, that I would, I mean, we, have that, we had that kind of relationship, we built up that kind of trust where I could actually say that in sort of a half-joking, half-serious thing, like, yeah, I do want to, I can't promise you that I don't want to see you converted. Um, and so we, we've kept in touch and we've had a great friendship. Um, so I think part of that is just, we just have to be people of integrity. We have to be people that are truly transparent. Um, that's why, like, when I was in college, we took, we took surveys of college students on the University of Minnesota campus. We said we were taking surveys, but it was really just a mechanism to share the gospel. Eh? We really didn't do anything with those surveys. Um, we just, and, and I just felt like, that's just not right. That's just not integrity. We're not just being, we're not being honest about what we're doing. Now, if we were really doing some kind of scientific research and we were writing an article on it and we were gonna get it published in a journal or something like that, then, then that's honest. But we have to be totally transparent as, as people and as a church and, the, and treat people with dignity. I don't know if that helps, but that's just a couple things. Okay, um, <clears throat> just a couple more things. So, let me, let me just do one thing and then just give you one more exercise. So point number eight, evangelism is both prophetic and a process. So let me define prophetic evangelism. Gary Tyra in his book, The Holy Spirit and Mission, he defines it this way. Prophetic evangelism refers to verbal presentations of the gospel and acts of compassion 
that tend to be delivered in an extemporaneous and spontaneous manner as a result of an explicit sense that the disciple is being prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so in a particular way at a particular time. So it may just be, it was like, it's like Paul, um, uh, or not Paul, um, it's like Peter in Acts chapter three, where they see the guy and they go, um, hey, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. That's prophetic. It's prophetic evangelism. They, they spoke prophetically into a human need. But, so it can be that, and some of us are better at one or the other. I could see Father Brett being very prophetic in his evangelism, okay? I tend to be more of a process guy. So here's how Tim Keller provides, uh, describes evangelism as a process. Most people in the West need to be welcomed into community long enough for them to hear multiple expressions of the gospel, both formal and informal, from individuals and teachers. As this happens in community, non-believers come to understand the character of God, sin, and grace. Many of their objections are answered through this process. So which one is it? Well, I think it's both. And I think we see both very clearly demonstrated in the New Testament and especially in the Acts of the Apostles. It can be prophetic or it can be a process. Um, let me just close with one thing. Let's see, how are we doing here? We got to, I, Amy said I could go to about 12.05, so I'll try to go for 12.03. So one of the things I want you to think of, <clears throat> and if you've been on staff before, you know that we've done this often, and I hope at some point we can do it again. In the future, we do what we call a uh, outreach temperature. And it's a honest, grace-filled, but challenging self-assessment of where we are at personally when it comes to evangelism. And we got this from a guy named Kevin Harney who trained us in this, and it's just simply, if you had a scale from one to 10, you can't be a zero. If you're a believer in Jesus, you cannot be a zero when it comes to evangelism. Nobody's a zero. So, but 10 would be extremely zealous. You're like on fire. One would be, I'm really cold. And I could be cold because I just feel a lot of guilt or I had really bad experiences or I just, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get started. I just get tied up in knots. I feel inadequate or whatever. So what we have asked staff members to do is just say, where would you put yourself on the scale? Where are you at right now? Just again, it's a total self-assessment. So whatever you feel is reality with this. It's truly a postmodern scale, unashamedly postmodern. Just what do you feel? Where are you? Um, and so what we've done is we've done these check-ins where we just say, okay, I'm at a three. I'm at a seven. And then you get a chance to just offer a little explanation. Here's why. And then you answer the question, what is one thing I could do to move from a three to a four? One active step as we get involved, like, okay, I get out of my sort of my frozenness, my, my Christian bubble. What is one step I could take to move outside of that and do something practical? And I tell you, that will probably most likely raise your temperature one degree because you're in the game. You're, you're not frozen. You're not stuck. 
You're not just feeling overwhelmed with guilt and condemnation and perplexity and insecurity and inadequacy. You're actually taking a step, and you're like, okay, Lord, I am going to move with you, Lord Jesus. I'm going to move with you, and I'm going to follow your example, and I'm going to live in union with you. And so, um, so what I'd like to ask you as, as we leave here, okay, in the next, I'm going to give you a minute to do this, is just think of where am I at? Where would I put myself on that scale? Write down a number. There is no shame in this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. I love that. That's the gospel. Um, but there's also challenge. And there's also an opportunity to grow. There's sanctification. So where are you? And what is one step you would like to take? So I was thinking about, oh my gosh, I got to teach this this morning. I better take a step. So <clears throat> I did two things. I called my friend Rick, who's from Minnesota, who I knew back in the days when I worked at a computer software company as the fields system, field offices assistant. I was the assistant to the assistant to the vice president of sales in this company. So we've kept in touch all these years. So I just gave him a call and we just chatted for half an hour. I found out he's going in for surgery a month from now and I'm just gonna keep in touch. I'm gonna send him a card, let him know I'm praying for him. Um, and then I also reached out to my friend from two brothers that I haven't met with for three or four weeks and just said, hey, let's get together. What are your days like? So I, and I tell you, that got me more involved in the game. So anyway, just spend this last minute where you're at, give yourself a number, and one thing you can do to move out into walking with Jesus in evangelism. Heavenly Father, I pray first of all for our church, uh, that you would make us at Church of the Resurrection a hermeneutic of the gospel more and more, that we would make the gospel look more credible to people. That is the longing of our heart, Lord. That is the yearning of our heart. We, can, we know the ways we've been imperfect in this, but Lord, just help us to grow and fill us with your Holy Spirit. And then individually, Lord, in our homes, in our neighborhood, and with our network of friends, Lord, help us to find um, maybe small ways, small ways to walk with you, uh, to take upon ourselves, to, be, uh, to become like uh, iron that's next to a fire and becomes... Uh, white hot with a, a fervor, a zeal for evangelism, Lord. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.